Thank you for joining the Georgia Chamber Podcast. For 105 years, we have been the leading voice of business in the state of Georgia. Through these podcasts, we want to help you better understand the issues facing our state and how your business can grow and prosper. Thanks for joining us. To learn more, go to www.gachamber.com. live from the new chamber studios a little different look for us today but uh, we appreciate you being with us today and continuing to be part of our not only our webinars our roundtables but our new podcast as well Uh, before we jump into today's topic i want to give you a couple of updates Uh, our next energy our next roundtable is september 9th and we'll have the ceos of georgia's three largest uh, energy companies Uh, We'll follow that on September 16th with a deep dive into resiliency in the retail market. We'll be talking to some of Georgia's largest retailers. Our DC fly-in is virtual this year. It's going to be September 21st through the 24th, and we're working with all of our congressional delegation on a great agenda for you. We'll actually convene virtually every day from 1030 to noon. Uh, You can go to gachamber.com and register for that today. And then... On September 31st, we'll reconvene our roundtables for another discussion on health care, a little more broadly than what we're doing today on rural health care. And I also want to go ahead and encourage you, because I know we've got a lot of people today joining us from rural Georgia. I hate to tell you, but our normal rural prosperity summit will be virtual or hybrid right now. We're working through that, uh, but it will be October 6th and 7th, and you can go and register for that today. Again, lots of great programming, and that event will focus on rural resiliency. So some of the issues that we're talking to Vicki and Kim about today, we'll revisit on a more broad level uh, at our annual summit. Also want to encourage you to continue to go to gachamber.com slash COVID-19. We've got the governor's latest executive order, as well as information that we've just posted yesterday about how companies can take advantage of the payroll tax deduction program that came out of the administration about a week and a half ago. Uh, lots of issues around that, and you really need to understand it. So we've got great information there for you, uh, and I encourage you to take a look at it. And as I said before, uh, all of these roundtables, town halls, you can listen to them on Spotify or Apple Podcast uh, with our new podcast or on our YouTube channel. So that's how you can stay updated. So today we're really talking about this issue of the impact of COVID-19 and the recession on our rural hospitals. And we've got two great president CEOs. Vicki Lewis is with us. She's president CEO of the Coffee Regional Medical Center down in Douglas. And Kim Gilman, who's president CEO of Phoebe Worth Medical Center and the Southwest Georgia Regional Medical Center, which has been in the paper lately. And we'll give Kim an opportunity to talk about that. Uh, I think most of you that are listening to us today know that the Georgia Chamber have made it a priority. I've been saying for years that if our rural communities don't have quality health care, they're not going to have quality economic development. We're not going to have economic prosperity. These two things, health care and prosperity, go hand in hand. And we've had a uh, several years, we had a num- number of rural hospitals closed. And then in the last literally two months, we've had uh, two to three more announce their closures. And so I think what COVID's done is with many industries out there, uh, it's accelerated the concerns and issues that we were already dealing with. And so today we thought it would be great to get kind of a firsthand on the the battleground um, front lines from two great CEOs in rural Georgia dealing with this. And I do want to thank uh, Monty Beasy and our our friends with uh, his association, as well as with the Georgia Hospital Association, 
for being such great partners and working on these issues at the Capitol every day. So let's get started with kind of a, where we are today in the COVID world and the, the recession world. Uh, and Vicki, let's start with you and, and tell us what's, what's happened and what's going on in Douglas, Georgia. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Chris. I think you did a great job of teeing up uh, the world as we know it in rural health care. Um, we have been very fortunate and honored to be operating as an acute care hospital in Douglas, Georgia since 1953. Um, we work every day to meet our mission um, and work every day to provide exceptional care close to home. Um, our challenges, as you pointed out, really are around you know, the health and wellness of our community and some of the challenges that we face uh, with the, um, you know, the disparity uh, in healthcare, uh, some of the chronic disease management, and certainly the poverty level. Um, as you might expect, um, our payer mix is challenging. Uh, that is something that we work each day um, on. And, and I think the moreover is just to be sure that we are here uh, into the future uh, is, is what um, senior leadership team and our board work very hard on every day. So as you point out, it's, it's easy for rural hospitals to close. It's hard for them to, to stay operational and open. So, so we try very hard uh, every day to be sure that you know, we're, we're financially stable. Um, we keep the number of days cash on hand we need um, and that we're providing the services that our community so needs. We have been extremely busy during COVID. Um, I was just sharing with Kim, today we have 28 COVID positive patients in our hospital. Uh, we are an 88-bed facility by license. We have consistently had over 90 patients. Um, today, we have 100 patients in our hospital. And um, we have consistently been running three intensive care units when we are typically running one. Um, we, we typically have a 10-bed ICU unit. Uh, and for the past two and a half months, we've been running 25 intensive care beds. Um, and, and again, you can see with 28 COVID positive patients, that's, that's just a necessity. We certainly work with partner hospitals, uh, transfer patients when uh, that's the best thing for them. Um, but it, is, it has also been our very, very good fortune to work with very talented physicians. Our hospitalist group, uh, our primary care physicians in town have really worked hard uh, in, in making sure our patients uh, get better and go home. Um, many of our patients, a high percentage of our patients, have gone, gone home, uh, even after being on the ventilator for a number of days. Uh, some of them have gone to long-term care facilities, uh, but the vast majority have survived. And um, so that's, that's what's been really important to us. So keeping our caregivers um, energized and positive and making sure that we're all, you know, sort of rowing the boat in the same direction uh, has also been a challenge. Uh, we've said over and over again, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Uh, we're in this for the long haul. We know there's another side to COVID, but right now our challenges really are keeping everyone energized and making sure that we're supporting our staff and our physicians and our community. Um, I can't say enough about our, our community. We have had outstanding support uh, from everyone in our community, be it prayers, uh, be it food and gifts for our caregivers. Um, it, I, I just can't say enough. The, the Douglas uh, community has been, has been outstanding. Vicki, one question before we go to Kim to kind of give us a similar update. The patients that you're seeing now, we're, we're seeing some national trends 
that we're seeing some younger people more in the hospital now because they're back in school or back in college. And I know you've got a college there as well as a great school system. Younger adults, or is it still mainly seniors? Um, we've certainly had some young patients. We've had patients uh, specifically in their 30s and 40s, who have some of whom have been quite ill. Um, we've been very, very fortunate in that we have tested some children and adolescents who've tested positive, um, but very fortunately, those patients have been able to be treated at home or on an outpatient basis. Um, again, I give a, a big shout out to South Georgia State College and the Coffee County Schools, uh, Morris Lease, uh, Dr. Sellers, we have worked closely with them and um, they have just got a great plan in place. Our schools are back in session. Um, South Georgia State College is back in session, but they are following very um, good, solid COVID uh, guidelines. And um, I think that's been uh, a, a huge benefit to our community. We know that keeps the economy going, that keeps people energized about the future. So that too has been a real, real positive thing for us. That's great, thanks Vicki. Kim, let's, let's, let's turn our attention. You've got two facilities that you're managing and quite frankly, you're in one of the hot, has been one of the first hot spots that we had in the country and continues to flare up from time to time. So tell us a little bit about what's going on in Worth as well as you know, the, the Southwest Georgia Regional Medical Center. Sure. Thanks, Chris. Um, like Chris said, I do have two critical access hospitals. Uh, critical access, we're limited to uh, 25 beds. Uh, one facility is located here in Sylvester that is actually owned by Phoebe Putney Health System. And then the other facility uh, that I um, manage for the Phoebe Health System is in Cuthbert, Georgia, and um, the hospital authority of Randolph County has actually owned and has managed that facility and Phoebe has assisted them since 1996. So we've been in with it for a long time with the Randolph County Hospital Authority. And um, <clears throat> mainly what I want to talk about is the uh, Cuthbert facility because it was hit the hardest by COVID and also of the recent closure announcement that we made. Um, Randolph County is, just for people that don't know, it's comprised of two incorporated cities, both Cuthbert and Shelman, Georgia. <clears throat> the county population is only 6,700 people and it's projected to decline about 12% over the next coming years. The current poverty ratio is about 31%, uh, and it, uh, it has been named at one time the poorest uh, county in Georgia, actually. <clears throat> and this poverty ratio is, is uh, doubled of what the state ratio is. There's only 21% of the county residents are employed. So 1,442 employed out of the 6,700 that are in the county. So when you start talking about you know, facilitating and operating and sustaining a hospital with a community that side is, is very hard. <clears throat> the hospital authority um, has owned the hospital since the 1940s. And one of the buildings that we're currently in was actually built in the 40s and, and we're still in that building and it houses the main support services and the emergency department. The, um, we actually operate the hospital the rural health clinic and the 80 bed nursing home that's attached to it. All, all that's considered one um, facility. And with all, the same with all other rural communities, um, the hospital is the largest employer next to the, health, next to the school system there in that community. The hospital authority uh, on average employs about 200 employees and 
Um, the total cost of the wages last year and benefits totaled about $8.4 million in, in that community. <clears throat> what I thought was interesting when I was preparing for this was that um, of the 200 employees, 35% reside outside of the actual Randolph County and they commute to Cuthbert to provide their services. The hospital authority has made some large investments in providing indigent and free care to its patients over the years. In 2019, we provided over 4.8 million in free care just in that one uh, facility. <clears throat> and, and whether it's patients who qualified for free in discounted care or the patients that failed to pay their bill or their account and was deemed uncollectible, but it was around 4.8 million. Um, the um, community, like I said, the hospital is one of the largest employers for there, at, except for the school system. And the hospital authority intends to continue the operations of the clinic and the nursing home, even though they've announced that the hospital itself, meaning the emergency department and the inpatient, will be closing on October the 22nd. Some jobs will remain. We're actually going to, um, the, the companies we're talking to right now have taken over those operations. They're going to absorb um, some of the other, like dietary, for example. It's considered in the hospital, but it's going to be rolled over into the nursing home. <clears throat> there will be approximately 50 jobs that will be lost in that community, and uh, but the others will be absorbed. Speaking of COVID-19 and how it has affected us at that facility, <clears throat> it's completely reshaped how we, um, how healthcare is delivered there. As we watch the cases rise across the nation and even in our communities in Darty County, even because we were, you know, we, we saw that happening. Um, we were spending countless hours trying to prepare as other hospitals were, had teams working on new protocols, uh, stocking up on PPE, the personal protective equipment. We knew it was coming and we were preparing, but the reality of the virus and its impact were far worse than what we ever anticipated. COVID-19 truly showed our vulnerabilities as a rural hospital, as a rural facility, especially a critical access facility with only, you know, those 25 beds and we're cost-based reimbursed. We uh, typically have a very minimal staffing structure. Um, and then we also have limited physicians. There in that community in Randolph County, we only have two physicians full-time. <clears throat> then the others are nurse practitioners and PAs. We have a very aging facility, like I just mentioned. Um, part of it was built in the 1940s, so it's not uh, prepared, and the rest of it was built in the 70s, but it's not prepared to take on some of the challenges that COVID uh, gave us. In one day, we went from not having any COVID cases to having over 70% of our nursing home residents test positive in one day. We made the decision to test all patients after we had two come up showing uh, symptoms. Now, keep in mind those 70% were not actually showing symptoms, but they actually tested positive. So we had to treat them as positive patients or residents there in the nursing home. Our staff, Remember I told you we had two physicians, both of them within about three days uh, were not with us anymore. One became ill and the other one had an unexpected emergency surgery that he had to be out for eight weeks. So um, that, that left us quickly where we had to uh, regroup and figure out what we we're going to do in a hurry. <clears throat> After the initial shock and reality quickly set in, the actions were taken 
to backfill with physicians from other facilities and to accept uh, staff from neighboring hospitals in the state. The state has provided us staff there in our, in our nursing home. We have five currently and without them, I'm not real sure right now what we would do because we have lost lots of staff due to many reasons, COVID being some, some were just scared and just quit and started, went and started doing other type jobs. Uh, we had engineers and facility experts had to step in to create appropriate air balances in our nursing home. So we could install 40 bioshields, which helps create the negative pressure environment that's necessary uh, to contain the airborne particles for when you have COVID positive patients. <clears throat> and, and due to the outdated HVAC units, the portable air chillers had to be brought in for us to ha even have enough air to circulate for those bioshields. So you can tell, I mean, COVID just flipped us upside down. Um, the PPE supply and usage became a new, literally hour to hour discussion. We were trying to conserve what we had and then um, find out where we could get others um, supplies from while ensuring that the staff had the clear understanding of how to utilize it and how to conserve it because we've never been under those type of uh, situations before. The extreme focus on staff facility needs and the negative pressure spaces and PPE still continue today. We, we discuss them literally every single day. Uh, we have command center meetings uh, with the health system daily to determine where we're at. <clears throat> but honestly, without the strong healthcare relationships that we've had across Southwest Georgia and neighboring health systems, even outside of the PB system, our operations would have crumbled there at that facility for certain. And here at Phoebe Worth as well, under the pressures of COVID. The neighboring health systems actually opened up their doors accepted our patients and our residents because with 70% of our nursing home patients being positive, we quickly had to take that other 30% and remove them from the positive patients. So that's when we actually shut down our inpatient floor there at that facility and moved our negative patients to the inpatient floor. So we had to get real creative in doing that. Um, like I said, we're still supported by state staff. The physicians are back at work and to date, uh, I'm happy to announce we've worked really hard, but we've had two unannounced uh, CMS infection control surveys there in that, uh, in that 80 bed nursing home, both of which resulted in substantial compliance with no tags or action plans needed. And currently we have zero COVID residents uh, at that facility. And today is number 78 since we've actually had a positive resident there in that nursing home. So we're very, very uh, excited about that. Prior to COVID, uh, the hospital was in critical need of major upgrades and renovations. You heard me talk about HVAC units. We needed a roof. There's just all types of things that was needed there. We worked for months to try and secure over 10 million in funding for the facility, improvements that, uh, that were needed to just make sure that we could continue to provide safe quality care. And the discussions of closing the hospital and continuing the clinic and nursing home had actually begun way before the pandemic ever hit. So the significant impact of COVID, like I mentioned all the things that were going on, really uh, stressed our operations and finances and simply pushed it past the point of no return, we felt like. The hospital authority made the difficult decision, literally in May, to close the hospital um, and for, um, 
trying to keep open the rural health clinic, have it be some type of convenient care, urgent care with extended hours, and then also maintain that 80-bed nursing home. And so on July the 24th, an announcement was made that we would, they would close the hospital, the hospital authority would, around October the 22nd. So that's the date that we're looking at. And the, but the hospital authority remains in, will remain in place and it's gonna take steps, like I said, to make sure that the residents of Randolph County have continued access to quality care. It may look different, but, um, but they will have um, access to care. And that's kind of where we're at with that facility here at Phoebe Worth. It was completely different. Um, it, was, it was almost, I mean, yes, it's two hospitals, they're both critical access, but they were nowhere even similar in the, the things that were going on at the two during the, during the crisis. Here at Phoebe Worth, um, like I said, we have limited staffing. So when the crisis hit, we, we did hit uh, 25 patients. But what happened is we normally staff for about 18 patients. So when we, when we went up, we were unable to go up with our staffing due to we usually staff with what we call PRN staff as when needed. That's how we take care of our influx and our increase in census. Well, we're not able to do that because all of those PRN staff actually have full-time positions at other hospitals that were requiring them to come there and work. So we, so our infection control practitioner, anybody that had nursing license behind their name, they became a bedside nurse during that time. Um, the nurse director, the case manager, the swing bed coordinator, anybody that had a nursing license uh, became a bedside nurse. And that's how we got through that. And we continue to do that today whenever our uh, census goes up from time to time. But currently right now, we don't, um, in our work facility, we only have one positive patient. We do work closely with the facilities in Albany and across the state actually in getting patients where they need to be for the care they need. Thank you, Kim. I'm gonna, uh, I'll come back with a couple of questions, but Vicki, I'm gonna go to you for a minute. Kim made several comments about the expenses of dealing with COVID, right? The, the air purification, the PPE and all that. I'm curious, on average, rural hospitals have about 30, less than 30 days cash on hand and COVID obviously hit that. What did that look like financially for you or what did you hear from your peers too about all these additional expenses and what's, what's that done to the bottom line? How does that affect you financially? That's a great que question, Chris. Um, we are um, about 25% over budget on our supplies uh, this year. And uh, a lot of that is PPE. A lot of it is medications as well um, and blood and blood products. As you know, um, we have been using protocols to care for COVID patients and those have included high-powered antibiotics. They've included high-powered steroid, high steroids and uh, remdesivir. Um, and, and uh, very expensive medications in addition to convalescent plasma. So that, in addition to the PPE, put us way over budget. A hospital our size, we're, we're not quite in the situation Kim's in. Kim, Kim I give kudos to her. They, what you've gone through is, is absolutely unbelievable. And, and I know your leadership and, and um, Scott's as well have, have made a huge difference uh, in your communities. Um, we, our challenges, I think, were, were really around just making sure that we could cover the expenses we needed. Like, like Kim said, we did have to incur some expenses to move things around, you know, set up safe places for our patients to be and, and make sure that we could continue to operate. Um, 
stimulus dollars helped us for sure. I mean, we have been very, very carefully spending our stimulus dollars. We've been very carefully um, looking at our Medicare advanced payments. Um, one of the things we'll be doing in the future is working with our legislators to try to make sure that this Medicare advanced payment loan structure has a forgiveness uh, component. It's gonna be difficult for us to have a subtraction out of our future Medicare payments from that, from that advance. Uh, we've, we've tried to plan for that. We actually have um, set those dollars aside, if you will, and taken a liability out on our financials to be sure that we can cover that. Um, again, the, the, I can't say enough about the stimulus dollars. That's helped um, GEMA and FEMA. Uh, we are very, very grateful for the things that both GEMA and FEMA have done. We uh, have consistently had about 30 agency nurses provided by GEMA uh, in our facility. Uh, we could not have gotten through this without that. We have fabulous caregivers. I can't tell you, worked a lot of overtime hours. We too redeployed um, nurses who were working in case management and office settings out to clinical um, settings to try to make sure we had enough staff. But without GEMA and FEMA and the state support, we, we really could not have gotten through this either. And I don't, I think probably um, the folks on the call uh, understand when we get this emergency staffing through GEMA, we don't pay those individuals. The state is picking up the salaries for those individuals. So that has been extraordinarily helpful to us. So all the overtime dollars, all the extra staff that are needed, we certainly pay a portion of that when it's our staff that are working but the state uh, supplied staff, that, that is uh, just, just a real help in that uh, those are not dollars we have to extend out. Um, we are, we're very worried about next year. I mean, one of the things you, Kim mentioned unemployment, uh, we are looking at probably a pretty dramatic change in our payer mix next year. Uh, we know that the unemployment is going to infect the affect the insured we too run an uninsured clinic. We have a clinic here in Douglas, the Open Arms Clinic. It is specifically for people who don't have insurance. Um, that's been affected by COVID. It's been, it's been very difficult. Um, you can't do telemedicine with folks who are indigent and they have to have an in-person visit. It's been very difficult to keep that indigent clinic open uh, during this time. Um, and so that, we know that's gonna be a challenge next year. Um, said another way, some of the pent-up demand created by chronic diseases um, of these folks who um, are not insured is, is going to affect systems like Kim's and, and like ours. It, we know that next year is, is going to be a year of fallout from some of this. We're not really looking to get things uh, completely stood back up or get back to normal until about the middle of next year. Um, we think that's... Um, you know, a little bit of a hope and somewhat of a strategy, um, but we are planning for, for a marathon here and, and certainly looking at, you know, things that we can do to keep our community healthy. Um, we hold a community huddle every Friday afternoon. Uh, that's a telephone call. We use our local chambers um, help there, our CEO roundtable locally, and just invite people in and talk about what we're doing and where we are. Um, have the superintendent of schools and the president of the college and, and local business leaders comment and ask questions. So we're all in this together. Uh, I know we can get to the other side, but 
but we're, we're nervous. Um, we're nervous about not only cash, but just covering the expenses created by COVID. Thank you, Vicki. And, and kudos, Vicki, to you too. The, the roundtable that you host, and I've been at it before, I think is really a model for other communities. And to know that you continue to do that through COVID, I think, speaks to your leadership and the great community that you're in. So thank you for, for doing that. Kim, uh, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the financial situation. So two-part question. One, uh, do you have those non-emergency um, procedures coming back in? Is that that helping your bottom line uh, over there. And my second part of the question is, you said the issues in Cuthbert were, they were there before COVID, right? Like m many of our rural facilities, right? How, how fast did COVID expedite that closure? I mean, could that hospital stay open until 2023 or 24, or was it, was it going, no matter what happened, was it gonna be doomed this year? Yeah, um, I'll answer your last question first. Yes, it was. Uh, we had already began those conversations and we were looking at somewhere this year. We didn't quite know what the date was. We were doing cash uh, projections, trying to see when the cash would run out. And we had projected somewhere around July. Now with COVID, because we have gotten lots of COVID funds and we've been able to use these COVID funds for our operations uh, as far as the lost revenues, the impact that we've had there because of surgery, we've not been able to um, do surgeries and we're still not. And, and, and the increased expenses that we've had of all those things I listed, um, that, that we've been able to use some COVID money. And so far we've used approximately $2 million on that. And so that does put, give us some cash. And so we're able to push that date out a little further into October. So that's what we're looking at for that. And as far as the, uh, the other procedures that you spoke about, being the critical access hospital and our main emphasis there is the, the nursing home. The nursing home really was holding up the hospital uh, as, as much as it could and the clinic. But um, as far as the other procedures, we, we did have surgery there. We've not been able to get that started back yet uh, due to a couple reasons. Not only it was COVID at first, but now we've, we had one part-time surgeon that was full-time somewhere else, and now he's retiring. And so it's the, it was the issue of finding a surgeon that would come to such a rural area and, um, and do surgeries, but yet be there and be available for backup follow-up care. And so that, that was very, um, that's been tough. And so we, we lost a lot in the surgery realm. But um, so that's kind of where we're at with that. So for, for both of you, I'm curious, um, what is the future for rural healthcare look like? Let's say we, you know, we gotta be resilient. We, we start coming out of this mid next year, Vicki, to your point. Uh, we've seen some consolidations in the industry. Obviously uh, the, the Sylvester facility is now part of the larger network. Um, with Phoebe Putney and Scott, again, kudos to Scott for all that he's done and a brand new job in the middle of all this has just been incredible. But, you know, are we looking at more telemedicine? Are we looking at more micro facilities? Are we looking at more mergers? I mean, what do you think, what do we do to survive and to make sure rural Georgia has a health system that takes care of its people and takes care of the, and provides for the economy as well? Kim, I'll start with you and I'll go to Vicki. Um, honestly, 
To have Medicaid expansion would be a positive step in the right direction. Uh, rural hospitals and communities are suffering. Uh, the rural hospitals, they, they're not sustainable into the future without shoring up some of that financial payment and forms that we talked about for many patients. The uninsured patients currently right now in Randolph County, um, the payer mix is about 20% for uninsured and we typically are not able to collect from those um, individuals as you might expect. Uh, the hospitals are having to absorb the financial costs for those 20% um, or more of the market share sometimes. By expanding Medicaid and paving the way to financial reimbursement, so many of the uninsured in the hospital survivability would increase their ability to invest in the operations such as facilities like Southwest Georgia Regional before it's too late. I mean, we had um, gotten assessments from engineers and it was gonna be about $10.5 million to actually put that facility into to where it needed to be as far as facility renovations, not even speaking of equipment and staffing and recruitment and that type of stuff, but just facility was about 10 and a half million. And the reason it had gotten that way is because for so many years, I mean, even being cost-based reimbursed, your goal was to break even. Well, if you break even, there's no money to put aside to invest in your facility and for those capital items. And so that is not a sustainable plan. We've got to have something that's sustainable. So it's really about taking care of those indigent patients that they yes. can't pay it. And I mean, Vicki, you mentioned it before, the poverty rates in rural Georgia are, are extraordinarily high, uh, sometimes twice, three times as high. Vicki, what do you think the, the future of rural health care is going to need? Well, I agree with what Kim said. We're watching closely the 1332 waiver. Uh, we're in the comment period right now. Um, I, any expansion of Medicaid would be extraordinarily helpful to us. Um, I, th I think that's something that, that uh, you know, we're really looking to and, and supporting. I think telemedicine is an opportunity, certainly. Um, Kim's point about how difficult it is to recruit physicians, uh, we all experience that. You know, there are specialists that we need to care for our community, and telemedicine is really the only opportunity. Um, I'd say specifically behavioral health, um, endocrinology, uh, th those kinds of specialties. We have a high degree of, of behavioral health uh, issues and a high degree of diabetes. So we need both of those specialties and telemedicine lends itself to those. Um, I would say that, you know, strategic partnerships also are something that we've leaned on. We believe that, you know, we can grow, uh, we can provide and meet our mission by, by um, adding services, but we need some credibility to do that. Um, it's very difficult for a community hospital to bring the outside in without a strategic partner. For us, that's been Emory. We've worked very, very hard with them. Um, they have a lot of expertise there. It's not an asset sharing kind of situation, but we really look to them for some best practices, some quality platforms. Um, and I think that's helped us recruit physicians as well. Um, we're very fortunate, and I've always, I think you've heard me say this before, Chris, I think there's something in the water here. While we have a high degree of poverty, we also have a high number of young people who go to medical school and come back to this community. We have a bring it home strategy, and we're going to continue that. And we've got to be a great place to work. Uh, we've got to be a stable place to work. We, too, are a large employer. We take very seriously our responsibility to this community. Um, so again, long way of saying strategies around growth, strategies around quality and credibility 
but also looking at the payer mix, looking at um, that 1332 waiver, trying to make sure that we can get as many people as possible covered under Medicaid. Um, our unemployment rate is not quite as uh, uh, high as, as Kim's. We do have significant unemployment now, some of which was created by COVID. So getting folks up on some kind of insurance platform is what we work very hard on every day. Um, and that has its challenges as well. Um, I think we're all gonna be looking um, on the subject of telemedicine for grants and support so that we can get the technology into the hands of our residents that are needed for telemedicine. Um, it's easy to say that you or I can do a televisit on our phone, but it's very difficult for someone who is unemployed, uh, doesn't have good cell phone service um, to even think about uh, a, a telemedicine visit. So we've got to uh, provide that. Uh, we've got to figure out ways to make that happen for our community and get those devices into the hands uh, of folks who, who really need care. They've got a chronic disease. We know that they need ongoing care and advice and medications. And so we, we've just got to be very, very careful about that. So last question for, for both of you. We uh, had one of the leaders of the CDC on about a week and a half ago. And we asked uh, him, what's the, what keeps you up at night? What are you worried about right now? There's a long list, but, the, <laughs> but you probably both have a long list. But two of the things that stuck out to me, and, I, and since then I've, I've read a lot about both. One is the mental health impact of this pandemic and the trauma and the recession that's going to multiply itself as we get into 2021. But the other one that he said was the flu season kind of layered on top. So I was so scared by what he said, I went and got my flu shot last weekend. So I'm curious, what keeps you two up at night? Uh, what are you most worried about for the, the foreseeable future? Kim, we'll go to you. Actually, I've thought about this a lot lately. <laughs> um, really, I, I would have to say it's the unknown. I mean, we, we came into this, we, we didn't know, we, you know, we thought we were prepared. We, we had, you know, three to four weeks to kind of get prepared. And then it was actually what hit us was nothing like what we had anticipated. And so that naturally comes to mind when we start thinking of the future, you know, whether it's COVID or whether it's something else, you know, what, what's going to hit us. And honestly, just like we've talked about, are we, are we going to be financially able to make it through the next pandemic or next whatever it is? And then we'll, we'll be here. We'll be able to be here and provide for our communities because that's what it's all about. If we don't have healthy communities, uh, you know, we don't have our jobs. We don't have our economic things coming into our communities if we're not here to provide. And so that's, that really keeps me up, not knowing what the future's like. Vicki? Yeah, I think, I think both of you have, have brought up excellent points. On the, I, we've got a short-term fear, I guess, that's keeping me up at night in the long term. And on the short term, I think it's, again, just resurgence of COVID patients in combination with the flu season. Uh, we are trying very, very hard to make sure that we can encourage and offer flu vaccination to as many individuals in the community as possible. On the back end of that, when there's a COVID vaccine available, we want to be sure that, you know, we're a solid site and we can provide that COVID vaccine for our community um, in a very robust way. We'll certainly partner with public health doing that. So it's just that combination of, you know, seasonal flu and COVID and how long that's going to last. 
And then I think in the long term of, you know, how much can we get back to normal? We were on a very good trajectory for growth. We were on a good trajectory um, in, our, in working with our community and partnering with businesses around some of the services we were offering. And we've had to, you know, postpone that and set that aside. And I think just, just getting back to normal, uh, if you will, or the, you know, the normal after COVID and when that's going to happen. We can go along for a while. We can get to the middle of next year, but there's going to have to be, you know, a different plan if things go on much past the middle of next year. And I think as a large employer and as an important uh, and part of the infrastructure of our community, that's a big responsibility. So we think about that daily, um, supporting our staff. I think you hit on it too, Chris, when you talked about behavioral health. Um, oh my goodness, the, the difficulties that we've seen. I mean, just like uh, Albany and, and uh, Worth have had, we've had some families in our community who've been devastated by COVID, who've had more than one family member. And um, that has caused unemployment, that has caused lengthy absences from work, and has really impacted, I think, the resiliency and, and the mental health of, of those families. So those are services that, uh, that we've got to provide. I just got a message from our city manager today saying that um, they got a CBDG grant uh, around behavioral health. So we were all doing the woohoo on that. So we're hoping that's going to be part of the future strategy too. That's fantastic. It's, it's interesting, lady. My, my grandmother was a hospital administrator. So she ran the hospital in Osula in Irwin County. And 30 something years ago, I was working at a hospital. I asked her, I said, what are the, you know, what keeps you up at night? What are the things you worry about? One of them was financial. And so things haven't changed in 35 years. The other one that she mentioned, though, frequently was the one cranky old doctor that she couldn't stand. Uh, and <laughs> up today, but listen, we do appreciate what you do in your communities. We want you to know the business community appreciated in your region and the state. And we're here to help and support in anything that we can do. And I do think uh, I want to give a shout out because both of you mentioned GEMA. And I do think, you know, Homer Bryson just retired. He's a good, great friend. But Governor Kemp has led that team with Dr. Toomey to make sure that the resources are out there in Georgia where they need to be. And uh, I think we're indebted to him and his leadership during this time. So thank you all for what you do. Uh, we appreciate everyone from joining us today. I want to remind you of those upcoming events. Go to gachamber.com uh, slash events and you can register for these future roundtables, our upcoming fly-in and get the latest information on our website. Uh, Kim, Nikki, thank you for being with us today. We'll continue to pray for you and your teams as we continue to pray for the state of Georgia. Thanks so much.